This is Luther's Works Linker Edition, Volume 14. We're on page 377. The 25th Sunday after Trinity, we got about a page and a half. And it's about Christ's warning at the end of the world of the perilous times there will be, how many will be deceived. So let's begin here at paragraph 28. Jesus says, Behold, I have told you beforehand. If therefore they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, go not forth. Behold, he is in the inner chambers, believe it not. At the time of the Holy Fathers, Anthony and others, Shortly after the apostles, the fallacy already arose of which Christ is speaking here, although Anthony strove against it, that everybody was running to the wilderness by the thousands, and it gained such favor that later Jerome and Augustine almost worshipped custom and did not know how sufficiently to praise it. Now, when we look at it in the right light, this text powerfully opposes that movement. And there were also among them many heretics and many condemned persons, and although there were godly people among them who escaped the deception. Nevertheless, the example was dangerous and cannot be commented, commended. Also, St. Francis was a holy man, but his example and the order he established we are not to follow. But this no one, not even the saints, has recognized so deeply and with such great display as it taken root. Christian life is not confined to the wilderness, but moves freely in public society as Christ and apostles lived, that we come before and among the world, preach and admonish openly to bring the people to Christ. But People run to the wilderness, do not want to remain in the world where they must suffer so much. They choose for themselves their own strict life, want thereby to be better Christians than others, as also the cloisters do, which are designated by Christ as the chambers. Our version says the secret chamber, or in the closet. He's in the closet. Jesus closes now, and he says, for as the lightning cometh forth from the east and is seen even unto the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. That's Luther's version. By this Christ wishes to say, only do not believe them when they want to bind Christ to this or that, try to lead you from faith to works. I warn you not to fall from the pure faith for you know not in what hour I'll come. When anyone neglects his looking for me, then I'll come as suddenly as the lightning flashes from heaven. When anyone clings not to him by faith, then he is lost. Therefore see to it that that day does not come upon you unawares. Remain steadfast in the faith, so that if you be indolent and sleep, Satan may not tear you from your faith. But these words here follow each other in disorder, for 
As I said, Matthew gives these passages all in a heap and not in order. Therefore, it does not agree exactly with the words which follow here. Wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. That is, you need not ask where the place is where Christ shall come. I am where I wish to be. Hence, we will meet each other as we say, Wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Whereas the eagle does not paint for himself the place to which it will fly, but wherever the carcass is, there they will be gathered together. Thus mine own will also find me. Where I am, there shall my elect also be. This is a text concerning the end of the Jews and also of the world, to which Matthew now unites the passages concerning the signs of the last day, all which Luke separates clearly. And this will belong to another occasion and is elsewhere fully discussed. Now we have the 26th Sunday after Trinity, the last sermon in this book. This sermon is found only in the Cruciger edition, the C edition. That's Luther's, Luther's acknowledged uh, edition of his works. He acknowledged that one. I'm sure he acknowledged others, but anyway, we know for sure he did this one. The text is Matthew 25, 31 to 46. It's on the judgment, the last judgment. I think I'll read it in Luther's version here, the way it is in his translation. But when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations. And he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd separateth the sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and ye gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, and fed thee, or thirst, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a, hung a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee. They sound kind of simple, don't they? That's the way Christians are. They, they don't, they're honest. The king answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it unto one of these my brothers, even the least, ye did it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, cursed, into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and ye did not give me to eat. 
I was thirsty, and he gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and he took me not in, naked, and he clothed me not, sick and in prison, and he visited me not. Then shall they also answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, or thirst, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not unto one of these least, ye did it not unto me. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The words of this gospel are in themselves clear and lucid. They have been given both for the comfort and encouragement of believing Christians, and for the warning and terror of others. Perchance they might be of help to them. While most lessons almost exclusively teach and inculcate faith, this one treats only of works, which Christ will examine at the last day, that it may be seen that he wishes them to be remembered and performed by those who wish to be Christians and be found in his kingdom. And Christ himself gives this admonition here in the strongest terms that can be given, both in the consoling promise of a glorious eternal reward and in the most terrible threatenings of eternal wrath and punishment upon all who despise the admonition, so that whoever is not moved and aroused by these words can certainly never be moved by anything. For Christ says that he will himself come visibly in his majesty at the last day with all the angels, that he will transplant all who have believed in him and have exercised love toward his followers into his Father's kingdom of eternal glory. All who believe in him and love his saints, that he will also cast into hell forever all who live not as Christians and who separate themselves from him and all his saints. Now, had it not been told us, we should be inquisitive beyond measure to know what would happen on the last day, and what Jesus would say and do on that day. Here we are now told, and have set, have set before us, first of all, death, which no one can escape, but after that, the day of judgment. Then it shall come to pass that Christ will bring together, by means of the resurrection, all have ever lived upon earth, and at the same time he will descend in great inexpressible majesty, sitting upon the throne of judgment with all the heavenly host hovering around him, and all the good and bad will appear, so that we shall all stand exposed before him, and no one will be able to conceal himself. The appearance of this glory and majesty will immediately become a great terror and pain to the condemned, as we read in today's epistle lesson. They shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. And that's in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For even if there were no more than a single angel present, there would not remain in his presence one fickle, wicked conscience. Were it possible to escape, any more than a thief and a rascal can bear to come before a human judge. 
If he could escape, he would much prefer it, if only for the purpose that he might escape public disgrace, to say nothing of his being compelled to hear the judgment passed upon him. What a terrible sight this will be when the ungodly shall see not only all God's angels and creatures, but also the judge in his divine majesty, and shall hear the verdict of eternal destruction and hellfire pronounced upon them forever. This ought surely to be a strong, powerful admonition for us to live as Christians, so that we may stand in honor and without fear at the right hand of this majestic Lord, where there will be no fear nor terror, but pure comfort and everlasting joy. For us who are Christians, he says, if we live as Christians, for he will then, as he says here himself, immediately separate the goats from the sheep. And this will take place publicly in the presence of all angels, men, and creatures before the whole rabble of an ungodly world, that it may be seen who have been pious, honest Christians, as well as who have been false hypocrites. This separation cannot take place in the world until that day, not even in, in the assembly that constitutes the Christian church. The good and the bad must remain together in this world, as the parable of the wedding guest says in Matthew 22.10, or as Christ himself had to tolerate Judas among his apostles. Christians are even now grieved that they must remain here in the midst of a crooked, perverse, and godly people, which is the kingdom of Satan. While they have their sufferings here upon earth, they will also have their comfort on the coming day of judgment, when Christ will separate them from the other flock, so that after that day no false and godly men or devil, nor death, can ever touch them or offend them. Then he will pronounce the verdict in the very words in which he has already prepared it and set it forth, and he will certainly not change it, Words are peculiar to, in this that he makes them depend upon the deeds and works here mentioned, which they have or have not done, and which are the bases and cause of his judgment. And all these words set forth at length the works which have been done, as well as those which have been neglected. And all this shall happen in the twinkling of an eye, when the hearts of all men shall be revealed before all creatures. And as it is preached here, so there all will be forthwith executed. You may ask why Christ here especially examines works called deeds of mercy or the neglect of such works. Six different kinds are mentioned in the text, although many more might be given, yet were one to judge critically in the matter there are no more works than those implied in the fifth commandment. Listen to this one. There are no more works than those implied in the fifth commandment. Thou shalt not kill, in which we are commanded in general, as Christ himself explains it, not to be angry with our neighbor, but to be kind to him and ready to serve and assist him, supply his wants in times of need, whether in hunger, thirst, nakedness, suffering, imprisonment, sickness, or other troubles, and to do this even to those who may have given us occasion for anger or for unmerciful acts.
and thus do not appear to be worthy of our love and benevolence. For that is a poor virtue which does good only to those we love, or from whom we hope to receive kindness and thanks in return. For one might, as has been said, add to those the works of mercy, many more from other commandments, for example, from the sixth, that one is to assist his neighbor, to protect his wife, children, and domestics, keep them under proper restraint and in honor. Also from the seventh, eighth, and last commandments, that is, to help save and maintain the goods and property, house, home, and good report of his neighbor. Also to help protect and defend the poor, the oppressed, and the downtrodden. Now, Christ says also in Matthew 12, 36, that men must give an account on the day of judgment, not only of the transgressions of these commandments, but also of every idle word they have spoken. Then where shall the works of the first table, the greatest commandment, as right teaching, faith, prayer, hearing and preaching of God's word and the like, find their place? Why does he pronounce such a harsh and severe judgment only upon those who have omitted to do the works of the fifth commandment? Because these works appear almost the same as those which the heathen do. For the Turks do more works of this kind, and they boast more of them than we who are called Christians. The works of the fifth commandment. Among them each one regards his neighbor as his brother and shares with him whatever he has. Nay, they regard it the greatest unfaithfulness and most shameful vice not to share bread with a neighbor in a time of hunger. Why does Christ so highly extol these works, which shine so brightly also among Turks and among the heathen? Certainly he does not mean to say that those also who are not Christians merit eternal life by reason of such works. Christ himself shows that he is speaking of the works of believing Christians when he says, I was hungry, and you gave me to eat, and so forth. What ye have done unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done unto me, and so forth. For there is no doubt that he who performs such works of mercy to Christians must himself be a Christian and a believer. But he who does not believe in Christ will certainly never be kind toward a Christian, much less toward Christ, so that for his sake he would show mercy to the poor and needy. Therefore, he will refer to these works at the judgment and accordingly pronounce the verdict to both parties, to those who have done and those who have not done these works, as a public testimony of the fruits of their faith or of their unbelief. It seems as though he meant hereby to show that many Christians, after receiving the preaching of the gospel, of the forgiveness of sins and grace through Christ, Come even worse than the heathens. For he also says in Matthew 19.30, Many that are first shall be last, and last shall be first. Thus it will also be at the end of the world. Those who should be honest Christians, because they heard the gospel, they are much worse and more unmerciful than they were before as we see too many examples of this even now. 
For a time when we were to do good works under the seduction and false worship of the papacy, everyone was ready and willing. A prince, for example, or a city could give more alms and a greater endowment than now all the kings and emperors are able to give. But now all the world seems to be learning nothing else than how to estimate values, to rake and scrape, rob and steal by lying, deceiving, usury, overcharging, overrating, and the like. Every man treats his neighbor not as though he were his friend, much less as his brother in Christ, but as his mortal enemy, and as though he intended to snatch all things to himself and begrudge everything to others. This goes on daily, is constantly increasing is a very common practice and custom among all classes of people, among princes, the nobility, burghers, peasants, in all courts, cities, villages, yes, almost every home. Tell me what city is now so strong and pious as to be able to raise an amount sufficient to support a schoolmaster or a preacher? Yes, if we did not already have the liberal alms and endowments of our forefathers, the gospel would long ago have disappeared in the cities on account of the burghers and in the country because of the nobility and peasants. And poor preachers would have nothing to eat nor to drink, for we do not love to give, but would rather take even by force what others have given and endowed. Therefore, it is no credit to us that a single pulpit or school is still maintained. Yea, how many there are among the great, the powerful, and the rich, especially in the papacy, who would like to see nothing better than all preachers, schools, and arts exterminated. Such are the thanks to the blessed gospel by which men have been freed from the bondage and plagues of the Pope that they must become so shamefully wicked in these last times, they are now no more unmerciful, no more inhuman, but rather satanic. They are not satisfied with being allowed to enjoy the gospel and grow fat by robbing and stealing the revenues of the church, but they must also be scheming with all their power how they may completely starve out the gospel. One can easily count upon his fingers what they who enjoy the gospel are doing and going and giving here and elsewhere. And were it only for us now living, there would long since have been no preacher or student from whom our children and descendants might know what we had taught and believed. In short, what do you think Christ will say on that day, seated on his judgment throne to such unmerciful Christianity? Dear sir, listen, you have also pretended to be a Christian and boasted of the gospel. Did you not also hear this sermon that I myself preached in which I told you what my verdict and decision would be? Depart from me, cursed. I was hungry and thirsty, naked and sick. Poor and in prison, and you gave me no meat, no drink, loathed me not, took me not in, and visited me not. Why have you neglected this, have been more shameless and unmerciful toward your own brethren than the Turk or heathen? 
Will you excuse yourself by pleading, Lord, when saw we thee hungry or thirsty, and so forth? Then he will answer you again through your own conscience. Dear sir, were there no people who preached to you, or perhaps poor students, who should have at the time been studying and learning God's word? Or were there no poor persecuted Christians whom you ought to have fed, clothed, and visited? We ought really to be ashamed of ourselves, having had the example of parents, ancestors, lords and kings, princes and others who gave so liberally and charitably, even in profusion, to churches, ministers, schools, endowments, hospitals, and the like. And by such liberal giving, neither they nor their descendants were made poor, what would they have done had they had the light of the gospel that's given unto us? How did the apostles and their followers in the beginning bring all they had for their poor widows, or for those who had nothing, or who were banished and persecuted, in order that no one among them might suffer for the necessities of life? In this way, poor Christians should at all times support one another. Otherwise, as I have said, the gospel, the pulpit, churches and schools would already be completely exterminated, no matter how much the rest of the world did. Were it not for the grace of God by which he gives us here and there a pious prince or godly government which preserves the fragments still left, that all may not be destroyed by the graspers and vultures, thieves and robbers. Were it not for this grace, I say, the poor pastors and preachers would not only be starved, but also murdered. Nor are there now any other poor people than those who serve or are being trained to serve the church, and these can obtain no support elsewhere and must leave their poor wives and children die of hunger because of an indifferent world. On the other hand, the world is full of useless and faithful, wicked servants among day laborers, lazy mechanics, servants, maids, and idle, greedy beggars who everywhere by lying, deceiving, robbing, and stealing take away the hard-earned bread and butter from those who are really poor and yet go unpunished in the midst of their wantonness and insolence. This I say, that we may see how Christ will upbraid the false liars and hypocrites among Christians on the day of judgment, and having convicted them before all creatures, will condemn them, because they have done none of the works which even the heathen do to their fellows, who did much more in their false and erroneous religion, and would have done even more willingly had they known better. Since now this terrible condemnation is justly pronounced over those who neglected these works, what will happen to those who have not only neglected the same, have given nothing to the poor Christians nor served them, robbed them of what they had, drove them to hunger, thirst, and nakedness, furthermore persecuted, scattered, imprisoned, and murdered them? These are so utterly wicked and so utterly condemned to the bottomless pit with the devil and his angels that Christ will not think or speak of them, but he will assuredly not forget these robbers, tyrants, and bloodhounds, 
any more than he will forget or pass over unrewarded. Those who have suffered hunger, thirst, nakedness, persecution, and the like, especially for his and his word's sake, he will not forget those to whom mercy has been shown, even though he speaks only to those who have shown mercy and have lent their aid. For he highly and nobly commends them when he says, Inasmuch as ye did it unto one of these my brethren, even these least ye did it unto me. On account of this judgment, fear and trembling might well seize our great spiritual prelates, as they call themselves. The Pope, Cardinals, Bishops, Canons, Priests, and the whole diabolical rabble of the anti-Christian crowd at Rome and everywhere in their monasteries and brothels, if they were not altogether hardened and deliberately given to Satan, body and soul, they think and act as though they were especially appointed to snatch to themselves everything that belongs to the poor church, and in their own wantonness to consume, spend, waste, squander, and dissipation, gambling and debauchery in the most shameful and scandalous manner, whatever has been given for the maintenance of students, schools, and the poor people. They mock God and man. Yea, they publicly murder innocent, pious people. Yea, woe, and another eternal woe to them and to all who side with them, for it has been it had been better for them had they never had been born, as Christ says of Judas. Therefore they ought rather to wish that their mothers had drowned them in their first bath, or that they had never come forth from the womb, than that one of them should have become pope or cardinal or a popish priest. For they are nothing else than merely desperate and select ones, not highway robbers, but public country thieves who take not the goods of the mighty and the powerful that really have something, but of the poor and wretched, of the parish churches, schools, and hospitals, whose morsels are snatched from their teeth, and whose drink is torn from their mouths so that they are unable to maintain life. Therefore, let every man beware of the pope, the bishops, and the priesthood, as he would beware of those who have already been condemned alive to the abyss of perdition. Truly Paul did not prophesy in vain in that he said that the last days would be perilous times. Yet all the world moves along indifferently and gives no heed to this terrible judgment that has already been decided against such unmerciful robbers, thieves, and murderers of poor Christians, but especially against those who pretend to be Christians, who after having received grace slide back again and like a dog eat their own vomit, or as a swine wallow in their own filth, and thus having been first become last, or anyone is aware of it. The second reason why Christ especially mentions these works of mercy and their omissions from the fifth commandment is that he wishes to remind us who've been called to be Christians, having received mercy through our Lord, have been redeemed from the wrath of God and the guilt of the fifth commandment and from eternal death, and on the contrary, have a gracious God is good to us in time and in eternity, 
Remind us, I say, to look upon all this and regard it as having been done not only for our salvation, but also for an example. For since he has shown us such mercy as to save us, we are also to act toward our neighbor in a manner as not to transgress against the fifth commandment, which especially demands love and mercy. We are not to do these things simply because of the commandment and of the threatening of judgment, but for the sake of the example of the excellent and great goodness God has shown. For this example cannot be without blessed results, as God's work of redemption is not without power and fruit. Although most people become worse from having heard the gospel, there must nevertheless be some who rightly understand it and remain faithful to it. For he says that he will separate them into two flocks, Therefore, there must also be pious ones who kept this commandment. Therefore, see to it that you are among those who are kind and merciful here upon earth for Christ's sake, or who even suffer for his sake. Then you may joyfully await the last day and need not be afraid of the judgment, for he has already selected you and placed you among those who shall stand at his right hand. For we who are Christians should hope for the coming of this judgment and desire it with our whole heart as we pray for it in the words, in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, deliver us from evil, so that we may also hear the glad and welcome words. Come ye blessed into the kingdom of my Father. This is the verdict we await. For this reason we are Christians, and for the sake of this hope we are so severely oppressed, first by Satan and by our own flesh, which would not have us believe this and rejoice over it, then by the tyrant and enmity of the world. For we must constantly see and hear the maliciousness which Satan and the world practices against the gospel. There is so much misery upon earth that we ought to be tired of this life and cry aloud, Come, dear Lord, and deliver us. For there are certainly souls who are joyfully, and with a good conscience, awaiting the judgment of Christ. For they are in the rank and fellowship of those who believe in Christ, and who show fruits of faith through charity and beneficence toward the poor, as, or, through patience in suffering with them. For as I have said, he who does not have faith will not do works of mercy to Christians, but he who does them will do them because he believes that he has a faithful Savior and Redeemer in Christ, who has re reconciled him to God. Therefore he must have also a kind, loving heart toward his neighbors, even toward his enemies, and serve them in every time of need. Yea, he endures also, as I have just said, those things which come upon him from the world and the devil on account of his faith. Whoever is thus minded, I say, let him be joyful and of good courage, for he has already the blessed and joyful verdict. Come, thou blessed one, for thou hast also been one of the least of my brethren, who hast thyself suffered hunger and thirst, or who hast served the other hungry and thirsty ones, have shown mercy as I have done. 
Behold, therefore, the separation of the sheep and the goats is already made in this life, so that everyone can experience it internally and must indicate and show it also externally. For they who do not have faith will surely do none of these things. They will neither comfort themselves with the grace of Christ nor think of exercising mercy. They pass by the word of God and their neighbor as though they neither saw nor heard anything. They do not care to know that there is a Lord whom they are to serve and who will demand such service from them. For if they would consider that they must die and appear before this judgment seat, they would not at the time defraud anyone of a farthing. But on the contrary, they think best to turn their eyes away from death and to keep the heart from thinking of it. The world is so blind and hardened that it can see before its eyes a great mass of men of all kinds who have passed away or are daily passing away, but is unwilling to behold it with seeing eyes and to heed it, but continues securely and gaily in its wickedness. Furthermore, when it hears of the terrible judgment and condemnation that shall come upon it, it gives no heed to the consolation and example offered through Christ, but practices all kinds of unmercifulness, strives to hear, and will have nothing else than the terrible, irrevocable verdict, verdict pronounced upon it from the judgment seat of Christ, and immediately after be cast from his presence into eternal hell fire. Wherefore, he who may yet be converted and is ready to listen, will have enough both to frighten and warn him, and to animate and persuade him to accommodate himself to the word and example of Christ, while there's time and opportunity, so that he need not hear with the world this dreadful judgment, but may have joy and comfort in mercy with all Christians. Nor did Christ spare his apostles, but earnestly admonished them when he said in Luke 21, 34, 5, and 6, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life, which he shows will be most prevalent at the end of the world. And that day come upon you suddenly unawares, Whereas a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Notice, however, as I said, that he wishes to distinguish the good works of the Christians from the works of the Turks and the heathen, for he speaks of the works done unto him of which both parties claim to be ignorant, the wicked excusing themselves because they've not seen him, and so forth. But herewith he has most beautifully explained the fifth commandment, that it means he who fulfills it can be none else than a believing Christian who did it unto Christ. Thus the woman who anointed his head and feet in Matthew 26 fulfilled this commandment, and is praised by him when he says, She has wrought a good work upon me, for ye have the poor always with you, and if ye wish, ye can always do good unto them, but me ye have not always.
Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, that also which this woman hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And again in Matthew 10:42, Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones who believe in me a cup of water, shall, he shall in no wise lose his reward. I notice it says a cup of cold water. And he says in our version, in the name of a disciple. And Luther's version says one who believes in him. Gives it unto a disciple or a believer in him. We should therefore impress the fact upon our hearts and consider that it's a great and fine thing to do good works to a Christian. But on the contrary also that it what it is to do evil to him, as is said of the Pope, bishops, tyrants, and feudal nobility, who take from the feet of Christ what they've not given him, the food, the drink, the lodging, and the support of the poor, and who are poor for Christ's sake because they are not in a position as ministers, sextons, and schoolmasters to rule the world. Nor are they able to engage in any other business in which they might gain a livelihood. For them they would also have been made to partakers of power and would receive enough. But since they have no part in the government, the world gives them nothing for their services. As they receive nothing for God's or Christ's sake, they can have nothing and must leave behind them poor, wretched widows and orphans. Those in other positions and offices who have plenty in all respects do not wish and cannot attend to the duties and services of the church, neither do they know how. And when the ministers and pastors engage in worldly trades and pursuits, they are stepping outside of their proper calling Therefore they must be supported if they are to have anything to eat from beggary, which Christ here speaks. But he makes it so precious that whoever gives meat or drink to the least of his members on earth, he receives the same as though it had been done and given to himself. Do we wish then to be Christians and expect from Christ the honor to be praised and rewarded in the presence of all creatures? we must indeed cheerfully and gratuitously give to those who are to perform the duties of their office gratuitously because they can have no share in secular matters. This we are to do in order to escape the curse and wrath that will come upon those who would not have mercy on their poor brethren who had to suffer hunger, thirst, misery, and imprisonment in the world in order to bring us to Christ. But how does it happen that the righteous do not recognize and know that they have done their works unto Christ? They say, Lord, when saw we thee hungry or thirst? The reason is that to give something to a poor minister, chaplain, teacher, sexton, is regarded as a matter altogether of too small significance to be so precious in the sight of God. Yea, the world looks upon it as so much money thrown away. Yet, will anyone say that the world would be so much richer were there no pupils, schools, hospitals? 
or that it is on their account any poorer unless it were entirely heathen, or were, as heretofore, compelled to give enough for the devil's sake, and allow itself to be flayed to the bone by those who have cheated it of body and soul. In short, the churches and schools receive the very least from the world, yet it is jealous, complains bitterly, makes a great cry about what they already have, although it gives nothing and claims to make much better use of its means, when at other times it gives a hundred times as much to shameless, desolate billions and jugglers. It soon forgets of how much it allows brother gay to be robbed, and even then takes a beating in the bargain. It never enters the brain of the world to think and believe that this means to give to Christ, nor is it easy for us to see it ourselves. But Christ is able to speak and judge rightly in this matter, and he knows how much depends upon it, for it is truly impossible to bring up the young in the kingdom of God in any other way than by means of schools. It's time to turn this tape over. Nor is it possible to maintain the word of God without pulpits. Where these are allowed to fall into disuse, there will be a second Sodom and Gomorrah, which will fare as those of old who despised the word of God and would not listen to nor endure pious lot. Thus also Ezekiel 16, 48, 9, and 50 prophesies of Jerusalem. As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done, she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister, Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughter. daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. The same conditions now exist everywhere. Every peasant, burgher, and nobleman is simply gathering dollars, waits and saves, eats and drinks, is insolent and mischievous as though God were nothing at all. No one cares for the despised Jesus in his poverty. Nay, he's even tread underfoot until all obedience, discipline, and honor are destroyed among us as they were in Sodom and Gomorrah. And matters become so bad as to become unbearable because all admonition and preaching seem to be of no avail. Right willingly do I prophesy, for I have often experienced how it came true. But the same conditions, alas, prevail now everywhere, and I fear and must almost resign myself, that Germany may have the same experience as Sodom and Jerusalem. It will be a thing of the past. It will either be destroyed by the Turks, or it will crumble by its own hand, unless the last day overtake it soon. 
For the present conditions are altogether unbearable and so exceedingly bad that they cannot become worse. And if there still be a God, he cannot thus let matters go on unpunished. And now the world will not take heed, nor recognize that it must die and stand before God in judgment. But it rages against recognized truth. Let us give heed and take it to heart, that the wrath of God may not also sweep us away. For what else would God need to do to that end than let loose both the Turks and Satan against us? The Turk would be compelled to cease doing what he has done and is still doing, were we not so hardened in blindness and impenitence and so completely ripe for judgment. The reason is that we rage so blasphemously against God's word and his proffered help, and then in addition make our boast against the Turk. And I reckon that if we Lutherans, as they call us, were only dead, then the whole world would immediately cry victory, as though they had already devoured every single Turk. But it shall happen to them also that a hundred shall be slain by one Turk. And when the cry of murder is once heard, how unmercifully the Turks will cut in pieces all people, men, women, and children. Then shall we also begin to cry and lament. It shall come to pass that we shall do as did the Jews, put Christ out of the way. When he has been crucified, we shall be able to take care of the Turk, as the squire Caiaphas and the Jews took care of the Romans. Thus the Yonkers at Jerusalem thought, they could only put the prophet Jeremiah out of the way. They would surely be safe from the king of Babylon. But what happened? After they had cast Jeremiah into the dungeon, the king came and led them into captivity and released Jeremiah, gave him high honors. Thus I can also see that God has spun a web over Germany as it is determined to be guilty in the same manner of willful blindness, defiance, wickedness, contempt, and ungratefulness in opposing the precious gospel. It is determined to be guilty of foolishness before God, for which it will have to pay dearly. May God preserve us and grant us and our little flock that we may escape this terrible wrath be found among those who honor and serve our dear Christ and await the judgment at his right hand joyously and blissfully. Amen. And that's the end of book 14. Now I'm going to read a remarkable dream about coming before the gate of heaven which someone had in Finland, I guess, I don't know how long ago. Up at the beginning, it says in uh, quotation marks, it says, the word flieth as an arrow, wherever it may, it is in the hand of the Lord, quote, unquote. And I don't know where they got that from. I don't believe it's in the Bible. I thought maybe it was a paraphrase and I could find it somewhere, but I can't even find it. Now, this has been passed down or someone has given it. I don't know, it's not in a book. I just have it on some 
about 10 sheets of paper here. It was compiled in Pori, Finland, 1893. It says, A certain elderly Christian had been troubled and perplexed for a long time as to which persuasion of religion would be the most reliable and certain by which one could attain life and salvation with Jesus in heaven. This man had seen and experienced many things in his lifetime. He had associated with the awakened and with believers. He had become acquainted with Baptists, Methodists, Lestadians, and the Free Church. But he continued to be concerned and deeply affected because he observed that the heavenward travelers were very disagreeable and intolerant among themselves. The Word of God assures that heaven is spacious enough to accommodate all who come in Jesus' name, trusting in his blood. Jesus himself encourages and calls, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and so forth. Yes, come unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and ye shall be saved, Isaiah says. This man also thought he had noticed that those who were traveling toward heaven were envious of one another, and even erected fences and barriers before one another on a heavenward way. Strangest of all was a characteristic that each sect of religion argued that it alone was truly on the way to heaven. All the others were wrong on devious paths or in grievous error, and each one tried to prove his point by God's own word, which declares, Straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Each sect felt assured that they were the few referred to here. However, he had observed in recent times that in some sectors there now was more tolerance toward those of other opinions, but in other areas, there was such a deep and severe intolerance that differing understandings and insignificant minor points seemed altogether to break and defile the sweet unity and peace between Christian brothers. Especially from one direction, there appeared a rude and injurious judgment, so merciless a rule, that those who do not receive the heavenly gift of forgiveness from their hands, they are devilish, defiled, and condemned with Satan. This man was sorely grieved and lamented this grievous intolerance between believing Christian brethren. All the more because he saw at the bottom of this fierce judgmentalism was hidden an evil Pharisaic pride and self-satisfaction which had originated and flourished in a soil of confused ignorance, for which reason it was almost impossible to correct. Not with God. During his grief, this man saw a dream which opened his eyes to see where the fault lay in this confused lack of love among Christian brethren. In his dream, the man was brought to the gate of heaven. The portal was beautiful and radiantly arrayed with gleaming gems. A beautiful heavenly angel was guarding the gate. From within sounded the sweetest music and countless voices praising the Lamb in the new hymn. Entering the gate of heaven were countless throngs of people of all nations, kindreds and tongues. They were all robed in white garments and had palms of victory in the hands of men and women and also children. 
There was no difference between the high or the low, neither were there any difference in their religion. A sincere harmony and love appeared to unite this blessed throng to one another, while they were joined in singing the sweet song that resounded to them from within the gate. Hallelujah! Let's be glad and rejoice, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. Quote, unquote. In the dream the man marveled and asked the angel, who are these? The angel answered, and his countenance shone with heavenly joy. These are they which came out of great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Yes, the blood of Jesus Christ, Son of God, has cleansed them all from their sins. That's why they are equal in love among themselves. Gradually the columns of the blessed throng abated, when the last of the marriage guests had entered the wedding hall with joy, the gate of heaven was suddenly closed and the angel was stationed to guard it. Then new groups hastened to the gate, knocking and asking admittance. But the door of the wedding chamber was closed. They were late. Sleepiness had detained them, as well as lack of oil in their lamps. In his dream, the man looked upon these new groups and saw to his sorrow that they were travelers pressing towards heaven's gate, but they were wearing their own multicolored garments, appeared very tired from their labors. Their clothing was very dusty and worn from the rigors of the journey. They approached in separate groups, distinctly apart from one another. It appeared as if the groups were de definitely avoiding each other or were afraid or envious of one another. The dreamer was very sad to see that the contrast between these and the white-robed throng hastened hand in hand into the gate of heaven in one great throng, even as members of one body or the same family or household. He asked the angel the reason for this intolerance between these groups traveling to heaven, and he received this answer. Quote, As you have heard, those in white robes who entered heaven were gathered from all nations, kindreds, and tongues. They've accounted themselves as equal members of Christ's body in love. They've not desired to adhere to any sect, but have been the beloved grace children of Jesus and his followers in faith, high and low, rich and poor, men and women, old and young, have been washed in the blood of God's Son have been striving to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. With all holiness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. In this way, brotherly love has been sincere among them. They've been one body and one spirit. They have had one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and in you all. Since it has been so, you beheld them as one-minded and walking hand in hand, arriving at their mutual home to the wedding of the Lamb, their dear bridegroom, and their works do follow them." Unquote. The man in his dream was amazed and began to inquire 
Who were those wearing their own garments, each group seeming to have its own leader? Each group also had its special attire, which made it almost impossible to approach one another. Each group also had its peculiar language and form of speech, its special books, lessons, and songs, according to the taste and need, doctrine of its stage of development. But before the dreamer could state all his questions, the first sect arrived at Heaven's Gate and knocked as hard as it could at the closed door. Since they could not enter, they began to look about if there were not some other path which would lead them around to get them in. But the angel, perceiving their wrong intention, asked them, Who are you, and from whence have you come? Their leader very boldly stepped forward and answered in behalf of his sect, We are the rebaptized of the true Baptist church. Quote, unquote. The angel shook his golden-crowned head and answered soberly, You are not known here. The Baptist gave way in fear and wept audibly over their air. At about that time, another group arrived at Heaven's Gate. The angel questioned them in the same solemn way, Who are you and from whence do you come? Their leader also stepped forward, assured of entrance into Heaven, and began to glance about if they could enter by climbing over the gate, and stated, we are of the right faith and are members of the Holy Methodist Church. To them also the angel answered, Here we know you not, and there is no other holy church on earth than that which is cleansed and sanctified in the blood of the Son of God and clothed in his righteousness. Their garments are white and not multicolored as yours are. The Methodists, stepped aside in dismay, severely rebuking their leader and weeping over their error. Now the dreamer was frightened upon seeing this and decided to flee from heaven's gate. He shed bitter tears of sympathy and sang to himself a familiar old verse, quote, Merit gains nothing here. It does not grant forgiveness. We beg the Lord for mercy, unquote. But the angel signaled him to stop and said, If you will believe, you will see the glory of God. And at that time, a certain sober group with its leader had arrived at Heaven's Gate. In their simple, gray, pietist garb, they truly appeared to be a proper and solemn group who represented the old folks' ways in their outward appearance. They seemed to strive after salvation all the desire of their hearts, as they also testified, and none could doubt but that these were the sect of the awakened. Their leader had inscribed on their pale gray banner, A sorrowful mind and drops of honey, which each, each one was to strive after for himself. Some of their women were heard speaking in tongues. As they neared heaven's portal, singing hymns of Zion, and saw the angel guarding the gate, they receded quietly in sorrow and misery, did not dare to approach the gate. But, oh, the exceedingly goodness and love of God! Over their heads there appeared from heaven in the clouds a wonderful circle of bright light, 
shone around them and revealed to them the way of grace. Next to Heaven's Gate arrived a large group of apparently free travelers. The sweet tidings of the gospel rang powerfully, powerfully among them, and Luther, the teacher of their doctrines, seemed to be held in high esteem. But unfortunately, these also were clothed in their own uniforms, that is, somewhat varied colors. There seemed to be many priests among them and much activity. They had access to vast stores of books, had many distributors of them, many lay preachers. A fair blue banner was therein sign, embroidered with thousands of strands of gold and silver. The sign of their ba banner was baptism, from which they were to begin and end. They also had a second password, not as pronounced, and of a foreign language, predestination, which means something about election by grace. It could be seen in a corner of the banner as it wafted in the breeze. This company proceeded toward the gate of heaven joyfully, amid the din of those who had joined the crowd. Seeing the gate closed, they began to leave to seek for some other portal by way of some other medium. But the angel's sober voice sounded, Who are you and from whence? The whole group of leaders responded with one voice, We are evangelical believers. We have been baptized, therefore we are born-again children of God. The angel said, Baptism is not a savior. Baptism is a means of grace. He who breaks the covenant of baptism must make a true repentance. He must be born of the Spirit in order to become a child of God, being regenerated by the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He must be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Jesus is the only savior to be praised forever. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cleanses from all sins. Have you not read John 19.34? One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. The blood which flowed from Jesus' side is necessary to redeem from sin. Lord's own wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. They do not arrive in their own garments. Water which flowed from Jesus' side is necessary. This stream which flows with heavenly gifts, wherein by daily repentance and renewal the old man is drowned and mortified, which is buried with Jesus into death, puts on the new man, renewed after the image of God, to serve him in everlasting holiness and righteousness all the days of this life and then in eternity. Oh, why have you come here in your own garments? Astonished and looking at one another, these also stepped aside, one after another, weeping over their air. Then from the northern tundras arrived a certain flock, cold and snow-covered from their long journey. They were weary and nervous. They also seemed to have separated into two groups on their southward journey. One sector wore the authentic, tight-fitting coat, or pesky. 
a lap fur coat which made movement difficult. The other wore a more loose-fitting garment. Clamor was heard from among those in the tight-fitting clothing which caused others to move away from their presence, which had to be for each of the men and women in their peskies carried around their necks a large horn or trumpet of judgment, which they sounded continuously. Those in the looser garments tried in every way to suppress them, but they became all the more zealous and separated themselves further into their own sect. Their flag was red, tinged with yellow. On it were written in strange, almost crude letters, intolerant and unscriptural, only by us can one go to heaven. As they arrived at heaven's gate, each one took his key and tried to enter in by force, imagining that they could unlock the closed doors of the kingdom of heaven. But it was all in vain. Keys which they had made did not avail. The angel was visibly shocked and full of pity. Who are you and from whence have you come? They shouted and said, We are the only right congregation. We have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and we have a fenced vineyard into which we do not admit swine to dig and delve. The angel answered, Here we know you not. You have erred greatly. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is in all the world. The congregation of Jesus has been and has lived long, long before you have existed. Jesus established his holy church with these very words, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching all nations. The angel continued to proclaim with a loud voice, Those who are in the untold joy of heaven, clothed in white garments at the wedding of the Lamb, are people gathered from all nations, kindreds and tongues, a grievous error and pharisaic self-approval is hidden where one considers himself to be the only true Christian. Even at the time of Elijah, the Lord had 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. For a moment, the pesky people looked at one another. The women began to weep and wail more and more. Even the men broke down in tears. They perceived that by their intolerance they had wandered into their own paths to prove themselves, and they began to step aside. Now a great army of soldiers approached heaven's gate. Gallant, handsome men and women in shining uniforms marched toward the gate. Their general, conqueror of the world, marched ahead of them boldly. After him followed in order of rank, the majors, captains, lieutenants, sergeants, and finally soldiers, men and women, regardless of sex. Their red, and, their red war banner waved high in the air, upon which was written in golden letters that Jesuit phrase, quote, The intention sanctifies the means, unquote. In the caps of the men and women could be seen two large letters, S-A, that is, Salvation Army. Their soldierly bearing appeared admirable, 
and the lower ranks seemed to obey commands blindly and without question. Even as they were practiced in appearing on the stage, they also now stepped forward to the beat of their drums and trumpets, sure of victory. In this way, this Salvation Army neared heaven's gate. Who are you, and from whence do you come, sounded the angels, sober and warning voice to meet them. The general answered, making an impressive motion with his sword. We are the saviors of the world, a church of right faith from the bleeding battlefield. As he said this, he motioned for his army to follow as with military power he planned to open heaven's gate and march within. But it was a vain attempt. The means were not sanctified. But when the angel drew his fiery sword, the general became frightened to the very bones and marrow and retreated as fast as he could go. Automatically, the army followed him, trembling with fear, and stood aside. When the angel declared with a loud voice, We know you not here, and, besides, there are no other saviors of the world but one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is praised forever. The whole Salvation Army wept over its error. Yet another certain small flock arrived at heaven's portal, standing on the inside of the ancient church. This group showed great vigor and activity. It read and sang diligently, but cared little for the sacrament of baptism. On the contrary, it had its own method of celebrating the Lord's Supper by breaking bread in their homes with their families. Carefully separated from the world, this flock feared to go to the temple of the Lord to eat in a company of sinners. They also said that the matter of a poor wretched sinner was an experience of a long ago past. They claimed to be walking in the light and brightness, thus striving for glory in their own sanctification. Thus this last flock, seemingly complacent, arrived at heaven's gate. But as to all the others, the voice of the angel sounded, Who are you and from where? They answered quietly, We are of the free church and come from doing deeds of love. The angel now opened a great book and cried with a loud voice, He who hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Thus saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. After this severe rebuke and sermon of repentance, a great silence reigned at heaven's gate for an hour and then two. At the third hour, the angel again lifted his voice and read to the gathered multitude, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. 
Anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. When the angel was silent, only heavy sighs, weeping and sobbing, could be heard from the deceived ones. Remorse over sin and sorrow after the mind of God overcame some of the groups. Strange movement took place among the different groups, for little by little they began to draw closer to each other. At the same time, the same radiance that before shone radiated from heaven more brightly than before. It seemed as if heaven opened over their heads. But then a great falling away occurred in the groups. One sect after another fled back into the world from which it had come originally to join the crowd. As they departed, they laughed and mocked and cast dirt upon those who remained gazing upon the heavenly radiance. Gradually the bitter sorrow of those who remained was formed into words. From among them were heard first subdued notes of song, which gradually grew more powerful. Their parched breath needed to breathe the refreshing air of the heavenly light. And then... Oh, the rapturous victory of heaven's throng! Those who remained at the gate began to gather into one group around the simple. The dissenters and the intolerant had disappeared, and the entire group was united together underneath the banner of Jesus Christ and his cross. Sorrow after the mind of God had changed their hearts and their point of view. The bitter differences had been settled as far as a heavenly light was able to enlighten the understanding and warm their cold hearts with the fire of God's love. Now the hymn grew stronger. In the beginning, the stammering voices and the songs even stopped momentarily, even unto tears. But now in the glowing light and the sounding of the gospel trumpet, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. A strong voice throng echoed at heaven's portals in unity among those who before were separated in differences of opinion. Jesus' name and reconciling blood were the theme of their song of praise. Now for a moment we must leave this now tender and loving flock at heaven's portals in the care of the great grace of God. The beholder of the dream marveled at the great effect of the heavenly light among the flock of those who had had varied opinions and how they praised God for the bountiful richness of his grace. But he yet also remembered the unfortunate lost wretches and asked the angel where they will go. The angel pointed toward the river of death. There was a vast plain where an innumerable number of groups of people hustled and bustled. All seemed to be in a great hurry, as if some strange power were driving them to and fro. As in a frenzy, they moved onward as a river with great force in one direction. Among them, a few listened to the voice of salvation, struggled against the current, 
and desired to turn aside unto a certain white-robed flock. But they had to suffer many wounds, shame, and mockery from the other throng. The large sea of people moved onward toward a bog in the lower plains. Before they were aware of it, in the blink of an eye, they tumbled into a deep gorge and sank in the river of death, which terrified the dreamer. Now the angel cried in a pitiful voice, Traveler, here is the end of the road. Then he said, He who believeth not is condemned already, for he believeth not upon the name of the only begotten Son of God. At heaven's portals were heard heavy sighs and weeping. He who saw the dream beheld the sorrow after the mind of God, which sorrow leads unto salvation not to be repented of. What marvel, oh, what unspeakable rejoicing! Without warning, the portals of heaven opened, and a brilliant heavenly light encompassed this troubled and sorrowful throng. They were able to peer within and behold heaven's salvation in all its brightness and glory. From within echoed the wedding song of the Lamb, the sweet sound of the trumpet, gospel trumpet was loud and clear as they beheld the wedding hall of Christ the Lamb. They were able to feel and taste that the Lord is good. They all joined together to sing the song of the Lamb, powerfully rang out the songs of victory, and all the travelers melted into one. They sang... We give all glory and praise to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who shed his blood for us. Now another great miracle of grace took place. As the brightness of heaven illuminated that vast throng, and their garments became whiter than snow, the air was now filled with songs of praise, and all divisions and their leaders were changed to brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. From heaven was heard the sweet voice of the bridegroom calling in blessedness. Come ye blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom which has been prepared from the foundation of the world. The love of Jesus had melted their cold and stiff hearts into love. Hand in hand, as brothers and sisters, they watched and cared for one another. Now the Lord's faithful in love stepped into the joy of the Lord to continue on there with the blessed throng of heaven, there to proclaim forever the thanksgiving praises to the Lamb. This man awakened from this remarkable dream from which he received a solemn teaching of the road to glory. He now knew assuredly that Jesus Christ alone and not a group of believers was the road to heaven. O oh, dearest friends, brothers and sisters, inhabitants of the nation of Finland, to trust in man is vain and erroneous. Let us trust and believe in God's own Son, Jesus the righteous. May our security be in him alone who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seek this heavenly road Believe these heavenly truths, enjoy this heavenly life in the faith of God's own Son. Amen. 
Now at the end, there's either a poem or a song, which we will read. It's got five verses. Oh, what bliss beyond all measure in our heavenly home above. Mortal man cannot envision this eternal joy and love. When in Jesus they are gathered unto glory evermore. Blessed fortune on this journey to believe in Jesus here, but more blessed than in heaven when they see their Jesus dear. In their homeland, in their homeland, from all sorrows, worries freed. Thank you, Lord, the time is fleeting. Soon our journey's end will be. There we shall have rest and comfort in our home forever with thee. In eternal bliss in heaven, we shall live in blessedness. There no partings will befall them, and no tears will ever flow. Sorrows then have fled forever. Glory is their portion now. O oh, dear Father, O oh, dear Father, would that wondrous day soon dawn. O oh, remember this assurance. Do not weary on the way. Ere remember your dear Savior, Unto heaven turn your gaze. Jesus soon will come and gather all his own to heaven's home. And because this glorifies the merits and blood of Jesus, I thought it was worthwhile putting in here. It's not contrary to God's word, the theme of it. So we'll say amen and May God have mercy on us so we don't become one of those sects who think that we're the right group and have no tolerance for anyone else views has a different view in some minor matter that don't pertain to doctrine. What did Jesus say? This is my commandment, that ye believe on me and love one another. And that's in 1 John 3.23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, it looks like we're too close to the end of this tape for anything else. So, may God bless us in faith and in knowledge of Jesus and love to one another. Amen. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty song. Not what this toiling flesh has born can make my spirit home. Thy work alone, my Savior, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can
Speed. 